0: Hello and welcome to Lecture 9A of MGI 515 IT Service Quality Management. We are working our way through the ISO 20000 document and we are up to the heavy spot in the document, and that is Section 8. Section 8 is all about the operation of the service management system, and we're going to look at the first three subclauses of that in this discussion. Now, I call it the heavy part of the standard because this is where we get some of the most detailed and useful advice in exactly how we go about the day-to-day operations of running an IT service quality management to the standard's requirements. This is kind of like the gold. This is the details. This is the stuff that's most likely going to help us with whatever method, whatever model, whatever details that we might be working with, such as the ITIL framework, if that's what we deploy. Before we get into those useful details, section 8 starts off with an overall instruction that says under operational planning and control, simply stating we're going to have to be in control. The way it does this is by linking back to clause 6, which you might recall is all about planning. That's where we made a lot of decisions about what our service management system would be and would look like. And in 8.1, it first of all says that, well, you're going to have to establish criteria. And this is about being in control means knowing what you're achieving, which means knowing what you're measuring and what you're explicitly comparing that measurement against. So what the standard tells us is that to be in control, we need to measure and compare at all times and know how we're performing. So point A is that we're establishing the performance criteria based on the requirements. And in point B, we're implementing control of the processes, that is, all of the processes, in accordance with those criteria. So it says, we're going to know what we're aiming for, and we're going to implement processes that constantly aim for that. And as we've come to expect... With the standard. It's not simply enough for us to have controls, to be in controls, to do it in a controlled manner. We're also explicitly told to keep all of the documentation in order to prove and to give confidence to ourselves and to other parties that we're carrying out these processes as we have planned to do, which is what we covered in clause six. And if that's all of the things that we might need to do in setting up the service management system, it then goes on to tell us that if anything changes within the service management system, we need to control those changes, particularly the planned ones, so that we manage the consequences and stay within the performance criteria that we've established. And that if unintended consequences occur, if the unexpected happens we are explicitly told to do something to mitigate the adverse effects. So we can't simply say, well, you know, this unusual, unexpected thing happened. We're expected to respond to that deliberately and aggressively, and not just for our own processes. We're also explicitly told that we need to make sure that any outsourced processes are also adequately controlled by us to meet the performance criteria. Then in 8.2, it gives us instructions about the service portfolio. And this is all of the services that are contained within and delivered by the service management system. So this is everything that we're going to do that will relate to a service. And it starts off with a simple delivery statement that says that we'll do whatever it takes. We will do whatever activities required in order to deliver the services. And this is before we've gone into any details about what those activities are going to look like and what it will entail. Straight up, it's telling us that whatever happens from here on, we'll do what's required. In 8.2.2, it's about planning the services. There are some decisions required now about what services are going to be provided by the SMS. So in order to make those decisions and to assume that we're going to make them well... We're going to need certain pieces of information. We're going to have to determine certain parameters. What's important? What matters? And this is what the standard is telling us to do. It's telling us to understand all of the requirements for the services. Understand the criticality of services. How important certain things are to anyone or any interested party. Manage what are the dependencies? What are the overlaps and duplications? It's essentially telling us to get all of the information necessary to make all the decisions necessary in order to plan what's required. When we get to 8.2.3, it's once again telling us that we are explicitly accountable for the actions of any external parties that we might outsource any activities to in relation to the delivery of services under the SMS. It tells us that for us to be able to be in control of external parties we need to establish criteria by which we're going to measure them, evaluate them, and judge them, or even select them in the first place. It then gives us a short list of the kinds of things that we're going to have to decide and document. Uh, What are the services that are going to be provided or contributed to by other parties? So, Which ones are we talking about? Or which pieces of those services are we talking about? What processes are going to be run by other parties, right down to saying exactly what activities they might need to perform if they're only doing part of a process. And it's then telling us that whatever pieces of processes or activities might be outsourced to other parties, we still need to coordinate all of that, and we need to make sure that what gets coordinated at the end, the result is meeting the performance criteria that we've already established a little while ago. And it's not just about doing the day-to-day, it's all aspects of the service lifecycle. So even in the planning stage, we might need to get external parties involved. Or any other stage of the life cycle design, translation, delivery – any part is going to need to be performance managed, no matter who does it. But it's not just about measuring and evaluating the performance of that other party. It's not an abstract determinant. We're also measuring and the effectiveness and the evaluation of the services that meet the customer's requirements or the requirements that those services at the end. So we're not just measuring the individual activities of the third party in isolation. We're still measuring the entirety of how that service performs at the end in order to coordinate between any of the parties that might be involved in contributing to that service. In 8.2.4, it's a simple statement about a service catalogue. We need to record the service catalogue that stipulates for all of the services that are provided by the SMS, what does that service do, like the activities, what are the results or the outcomes that are expected from that service, and what does it rely upon? What are the dependencies that that service needs in order for those outcomes to be realised? And these are attributes of the service that get recorded in the service catalogue. And it's not an internal document. This is something that we might need to provide to any external party, including other suppliers or outsourced parties, or to the customers or literally anyone who might be interested in understanding those services. From here on, we start to get a little bit more granular and perhaps a little bit more familiar with some of the technical activities that we're familiar with in IT service management. Because 825 is talking about asset management. And as we look through these, we'll see some things that we've probably come to expect by now. The standard is simply going to tell us that whatever we do in any of these categories, we're going to do it well enough. So in asset management, it simply says that we'll have the assets, ensure the assets are there that are needed to deliver the services ...to meet the requirements and obligations that we've set out in the planning section. That's back in 6.3. 8.2.6 says similar things about configuration management. We shall ensure that the configuration of all equipment, systems, services are done as they need to be. And to be in control of that, it tells us that we're going to have to record certain information about the configuration... So this is where we start to see some examples of where the standard is stipulating exactly what needs to be recorded. Certain information around configurations, the configuration items, describing them, describing how they relate to each other, a unique identifier, the status of it. The purpose of all this comes under 8.2.6 that says that, quite simply, our configuration items shall be controlled tells us that everything has to be not only controlled, but auditable. We have to be able to have an external perspective that comes in and checks to see whether or not the CIs are actually all controlled. And is the configuration information sound? Does it have good integrity? Is it sufficiently accurate? This is especially in relation to changes, the configuration items and configuration information, making sure that that's been done with high integrity. But it tells us we don't just have to have it able to be audited, we have to periodically check and verify the accuracy of the information. So we have to deliberately go and test the integrity of our CI database. So we're starting to see a more detailed set of statements about what's required, as well as still having the broad sweeping statements that says thou shalt do it all right. But a little bit more guidance is coming through on what the subcomponents of that need to be, and how we need to adhere to them in order to be ISO compliant. This is the end of Lecture 9A. Hello and welcome to Lecture 9B of MGI 515 IT Service Quality Management. We are into Section 8 of the ISO 20K document, which is the heavy lifting end of things, and we're going to talk a bit about the next couple of subclauses from Section 8. Now, 8.3 is about relationship and agreement management. Now, we know that, assume, perhaps, expect that a standard like this is going to tell us a lot about what to do with the technology and all the systems and detailed and practical and logical things underneath it. But above all of that, or in addition, it's also instructing us what we need to do in order to relate to people or between organisations and entities, And this might seem a little bit odd. How can a standard tell us how to interact as human beings? Well, it's needed precisely because we are used to thinking of interactions between human beings, things like relationships, of being very amorphous, very subjective, of being very personal. Now, in a world or an environment where we're expected to demonstrably prove that we can meet to a standard, having those personal aspects interact or interfere with us achieving our standards and goals is not going to be acceptable according to the standard. But most of what we're going to deal with or be required to tackle under relationship and agreement management is all about having a commonality or an alignment in the understanding that different parties need to have in order to work together. So it's not about friendships and being on good terms with people. It's about having different parties, different organisations, having an understanding of exactly what's been agreed upon and what are the components or the mechanisms or the things that the standard can outline that tells us what needs to happen in order to have that kind of alignment, understanding, and agreement between the parties. So this is what 8.3 is trying to help us do, or help us prove that we're doing. And in the general section of 8.3.1, it's saying, well, we might use suppliers. We might have suppliers to do services, or parts of services, or to operate different things. And really, it doesn't matter. What our suppliers do. They can do anything. But what this is stipulating is, where are the points of interconnect? So an agreement or a relationship exists between certain parties explicitly. And then it's going to go on in a moment and tell us more about what we need to do in having that relationship. But it's here defining where it believes, as a standard, that a relationship exists and therefore needs to be managed according to the standards requirements. As we go into 8.3.2, it's telling us that we need to be clear about these things. We need to document who the other parties are and where the relationships lie. We need to identify who is doing what and therefore what kind of relationship we have with them. It's telling us that we need to establish an arrangement, as in an aligned arrangement, for how we're going to communicate with any interested party. Now, it explicitly calls out customers, but it mentions any other interested party. We need to have an understanding and an arrangement with them for how we're going to communicate. It then tells us that communication needs to be positive. It needs to promote an increased understanding. It needs to be in such a way that both parties can understand each other a little better, in particular as how things change over time. So it's stipulating how we will respond and evolve. But it's not enough to simply have this. Obviously, as we've experienced with the standard, it's telling us to that we need to review these sorts of arrangements over time. But it goes one better than that with customers. And keeping in mind that a lot of what this kind of standard is meant to do is to provide a set of confidence to customers about what kind of things they can expect from the provider. So it explicitly calls out customers as a kind of relationship that's kind of a bit more important. And it says that we need to, at planned intervals, as in not randomly when we feel like it, but on a planned basis, we need to find out what our customers think of us. Find out how satisfied they are with our services and with how we work with them. And it's not enough, obviously, to simply ask those questions or understand that. We need to analyze, review, and look for opportunities to improve that satisfaction. So we have to periodically know what our customers think of us and then work on improving that. In particular, dealing with negative comments, the complaints that customers might give us. But in 8.3.3, it starts to get a little bit more specific relating to the services. Here it's now talking about service levels. So we have to have service level targets. We have to have an agreed understanding about exactly what services will aim for exactly what kinds of targets. And we then have to be able to report on how well any of those services are achieving those stated targets. And that's presumably going to occasionally reveal shortfalls, or inadequacies or failures or problems and these should be opportunities to improve perhaps and hopefully before it becomes a problem that damages customer satisfaction so obviously we need to have certain elements to our relationship with our customers but we also have elements that are required in our relationships with external suppliers and here it's more about the management of them because those suppliers owe something to us usually because we're paying them something, but there are what they're delivering to us and how we manage it. The first thing that the standard tells us to do is that we as an organisation need to have designated individuals that are responsible for those outcomes. So the first step to making sure that our suppliers do what they're supposed to do is there is singular and clear accountability for how that is managed within our side of the organisation. We also perhaps not surprisingly, need to have a contract in place. So it's not just having an aligned understanding. We need a legal document. We need a signed and agreed contract. And that contract needs to spell everything out. The scope of all the services, all the bits, all the stuff, all the things that that supplier will be provided to us, and the requirements of what that will look like, what quality, what expectations we have relating to everything they do for us. So what are the service level targets that they have towards us? And that needs to be specified in the contract as an obligation. And this might include particular authority or responsibilities that each side of the organisation, each side of the relationship has. Who is responsible for which bit? Who's authorised to do what or make what decisions regarding any particular service or its outcomes? That gets clearly defined. So there's no finger pointing. It's all specified in the document, in the contract of exactly who owns what. And Naturally, we're expected to manage that along with risks that come out of that. We can't simply ignore the risks and say, well, it's all documented, so now it's their problem, because there may be risks that we identify in their ability to actually achieve what's been expected or even what they've promised. So we need to make sure that There is an interface between us and the supplier, a way of communicating with them and them with us. Naturally, we need to monitor their performance. We need to have the service-level targets and obligations, and when they're not being met, we need to proactively use that interface, that communications channel, and not only from our point of view, but from theirs, look for opportunities to improve and solve the problems. And everything that's been recorded in this agreement, everything that's been spelled out, gets reviewed at planned intervals. Once again, not random intervals or not purely in response to a stimulus of some kind, but at planned proactive intervals, we'll review the contract and all of the service requirements that are contained within that contract. And any changes, we will discuss and examine the impact on the SMS. So before we look at making changes to the contract, we are required to know what is the consequence. What's everything that's going to flow out from that change if it gets ratified? And if, perchance, there's a disagreement, there's a dispute, we are obliged to resolve it. So we will record the dispute, that is, we can't simply ignore it, and we will manage it until it's closed. Now there's one, perhaps sneaky little element that the standard then throws at us at the end and that is for those situations where we might be accustomed to things being a little less formal things like internal suppliers parts of our organization that are kind of part of but kind of separate from everything that happens in the sms there can also be that loop relationship where we supply something to a customer and the customer supplies something back to us So there's this duality in the relationship. Well, those kind of awkward or uh, familiar elements are not missed by the standard. It specifically tells us that when a customer is acting as a supplier or if the supplier is internal, we still shall document an agreement to define exactly what service level we are expecting from that party. Everything that they need to do still needs to be recorded still needs to be specified and written down and agreed upon. And like any other supplier management, periodically we measure their performance and we deal with any changes to the agreement that needs to be made. So really, no matter what kind of practical relationship we have, what the standard is telling us is that there's certain things we need to have in place. We need to have agreements. We need to have ways of communicating. We need single points of accountability. We need documented understanding of what's going to happen. And whenever any of that is impacting anything at all, we need to proactively go in, make changes, understand the changes, and keep things up to date. This is the end of Lecture 9B. Hello and welcome to Lecture 9C of MGI 515, IT Service Quality Management. We're going through section 8 of the ISO standard, we're talking about 8.4 next, which is about supply and demand. Now in simple terms, supply and demand is about knowing how much we need of something and making sure we have that, not just today, but into the future. So supply and demand is about demand and capacity in particular, but also To kick off this discussion, the standard talks about money. It says that we shall budget and account for the money that we need. Not having enough money is not an excuse. Now, it's not saying that, well, the money simply should come from somewhere. It does say that we can manage the budgeting and the finances in accordance with our policies and processes for managing finances. So we're still allowed to apply our normal Financial practices to whatever we do, but we need to make all of the decisions necessary in order to deliver the services. We need to be sure that the costs that we're dealing with are accurate and that the financing decisions that have been made are still appropriate for the costs and the forecast costs into the future. But it then has this little sneaky little note that says that this isn't about charging customers. This isn't about the money side of things when we invoice the customer. This is simply about saying, do we have the money to do what we need to do? So even if we are an organization that supplies internally and we don't charge other departments that we're working for, we still need to be able to have budgeting and accounting for our services that make sure that any organization is going to have the right funding to do what we do. So in demand management, it's a fairly simple statement that says we'll need to know. We need to know what the current demand is and the future demand. So we need to do some predictive forecasting. We need to take some things into account, look at the trends, look at what might likely happen and have a forecast for the demand that we're going to need in the future. Because a lot of what IT requires will have a lead time associated with it. We're going to take time and effort in order to build up our capacity to meet demand. So it's essential that we have enough of a forecast and a forward view for us to be able to do that with enough time in advance. So we need to have the kind of monitoring and the kind of reporting necessary of demand in order to have that information now and to predict it into the future, which leads us to the discussion of capacity management, which is the flip side of that discussion. So the capacity is our ability to do enough of whatever it is that we do. And it doesn't single out any particular aspect of capacity. It says whatever we require, whatever it takes, it could be the people, the technology, it could be the information, it could be the financial resources. So any resource that is required, we shall make sure we have enough of it. And naturally, this is based on demand, which is why our demand prediction is there in the first place. So we need to know what it's going to take to deliver what we've promised and how we see that changing and what effect that will have on what it's going to take to continue or to deliver new promises into the future. This brings us to 8.5, which is about the design, building and transition of services. And this is even one of the biggest sub clauses in Section 8. Now, it's perhaps interesting to note that this section about design, build, and transition of services kicks off with a lengthy discussion about change management. Now, in a broader strategic time frame, change management was not really adopted as a thing, as a particular professional function or expertise until somewhat recently in the modern era. And yet, here we are in this ISO standard leading with the requirements of change management. It's also the kind of thing that a lot of organisations that tend to wing their way through their requirements often miss out or underperform. Even some of the biggest organisations that we know of might compromise what they do with change management. Well, not according to ISO 20000. According to this standard, thou shalt have a change management policy and we shall make sure that everything that goes on in relation to the service management system follows that change management policy. We'll make sure that that change management policy is kept up to date, make sure it's documented so that everyone knows about it, and that that documentation evolves and changes as a result of any impacts or lessons learned. Part of this is a recognition of the fact that changes in a technical environment can have dramatic impact on the service and operations, not only of the services themselves, but of the business that depends upon those services. Outcomes at all levels can be drastically affected by unmanaged change. So it then stipulates a number of things that are relevant in requests for change. So changes to, for, about, anything to do with changes to the services need to be recorded and classified. So it will go on to talk about design and transition a little bit later, but it's telling us right here under change management when and where we will need to use that design and transition section of the standard. When do we need to adhere to that? And it specifies things such as, obviously, new services, but changes to services that might be significant, that could have a major impact. Any change that is according to the policy requires design and transition also anything that removes a service or that transfers the service from one organization to another these are all things that will require a detailed analysis a detailed set of decision making and therefore require the use of the design and transition processes and whatever we do regarding this change management will adhere to the policies and the management change management activities that we've specified It even has a little bit of the decision-making that we might need to go through in order to decide or approve change requests. It tells us that, in simple terms, we need to be quite complete and responsible about the decision-making regarding approving changes. Particularly, we need to look at the risks and the benefits, we need to look at the feasibility uh, and how much it might affect the financial situation, positive or negative, how it'll affect Existing services or the customers of services or any interested party perhaps. How certain policies might be affected by a change. Or plans for the future. Predictions and forecasting that we might have done. How might that be affected by changes that we're looking to approve? How might it impact capacity or demand? The availability of services or their continuity? Or how one request or a change of some kind might affect other changes that are perhaps yet to be approved or have just been approved and might be still waiting for deployment. It tells us we need to be thorough and careful about approved changes. So even once they're approved, we still need to check and verify that they're going to do what we thought they would do and, if possible, tested beforehand. Because when we're approving a change in advance, there are a certain amount of assumptions that we have to rely upon. And where possible, we should be testing those assumptions and revalidate the decision about what impact any change might have. And if we're going to go ahead and make a change, we need to make sure that all of the interested parties know exactly what that change is, when it'll happen, how it'll happen, and what impact we expect it will bring. But it's not enough to have all these around the way in which changes get approved and implemented. We need to be able to reverse or remedy negative impacts of an unsuccessful change. So where possible, we need to be able to back out a change or we need to be able to take some pretty quick and effective action to deal with negative occurrences or negative outcomes from a change that hasn't gone as expected or that has failed in some way. We might need to agree with other parties on what that response might look like. If a change could potentially have a big impact on a customer or a supplier, we might need to work out with them and coordinate and get their agreement on what actions need to be taken if that change fails. And overall, how we go about the change of things is something we need to record, review, reflect upon, and improve as best we can. We then get into the details that were just alluded to in 8.5.2, which is service design and transition. So this is about planning for new services or for changes to services, and how that design process might need to work and what it might need to include. And it gives us a short list of the kind of things that it needs to contain, that the decision-making and the requirements and the planning and everything that goes on needs to have and include certain things. And these are some obvious things, including the resources necessary, uh, the authorities and responsibilities for who handles what, all the actions that need to be taken, the consequences, the dependencies on other services, what depends on this and what other things are dependent upon this all the testing that might need to be done, and the service criteria that's being aimed for. If a change is occurring, what are the new performance or service acceptance criteria? How do we know if it's been done correctly or not? And this really doesn't matter whether something's being added, changed, or removed. We still need to go through the complete process of understanding what all these impacts are. But in particular, if something's being removed, we need to make sure that we're protecting ourselves from the consequences of having something that's just no longer there. So archiving certain things that we do need to keep long-term, data, information, documents, things that might need to outlive the service itself. We need to know what they are, and we need to have a plan for dealing with and protecting us from the impact of those sub-components. It then goes on to give us an even more specific list about what needs to happen and be included in the design of services or changes to services. And it's a similar kind of discussion, much of the sorts of things you'd expect. It's all of the who's involved, what's it going to take, what's it going to look like, how is this going to affect agreements, SLAs, contracts, how is it going to change the SMS, how is it going to change perhaps the processes, the policies, what we do, how we go about it, how might it impact other services. And if you're going to change... A service or add one then there's also obviously going to be a change to the service catalog and the information that it contains when we build these things we're expected to test it and verify that they meet the service requirements it's not enough to say we'll build it and they will come we have to make sure that it's built exactly the way we expected it to be and if it's not we're going to do something about it when things have to get deployed into a live environment we're going to do it in a careful managed process That is the release and deployment management. So we need to make a bunch of decisions about how we're going to go about releasing and deploying anything new. How often, who's involved, what's an emergency release going to look like, and how are we going to manage the release and deployment of anything? This needs to be decided and recorded. So quite logically, perhaps, the standard is telling us that when we do release something new, we have to do it as carefully as we have to. We shall plan it. We shall coordinate with other parties. We shall make sure we're taking all of our lessons learned into account. Anything that we already know must play some role in the decisions we make in how we roll this new thing or this changes out, especially if it's something that's meant to be correcting or improving something that has had some input or some stimulus earlier. Obviously, we need to be taking all of that into account to make sure that it does what's expected of it then there's the practical, logistical side of releasing things. We need to have clear dates, clear timeframes. We need to have a clear understanding of expectation. What is going to occur through this deployment process and what should occur immediately afterwards? And sometimes we'll need to confirm that with other parties. We'll need their input or even their agreement. And when something does roll out, we make sure that it's been verified and proven against the documented criteria that are originally specified, that says, well, it needs to meet this. So we check to make sure that it does. We also are required to make sure that it doesn't impact the expectations or anything else that meets its criteria. So that goes back to the planning that we made on how we're going to interact with anything else that's currently functioning in the live environment. We need to test and make sure that nothing has been negatively impacted by this new change that's been implemented. And as we do this over a period of time and regularly, we will analyse and reflect on how we go about it. We will look at the very process of change management, design, build, transition, release and deployment. We'll look at all of it as a trend and we'll look at any ways in which we could improve that process. We will deliberately seek out opportunities to increase and improve every aspect of how we go about bringing change into the service management system. And we'll not only do all of that, We'll record it and share it so that everyone else can see that we're doing all of that. This is the end of Lecture 9C. Welcome to Lecture 8D of MGI 515 IT Service Quality Management. We're about to tick off the last 2 subcomponents of Section 8 in the ISO standard. At 8.6, we're ready to talk about the real engine room of most IT providers, and that is resolution and fulfillment. Incidents, problems, etc. Now, these, we go back to being simple, clear, but sweeping statements of exactly what's required. And a lot of it is to do with the information that we record. So here we're not really being told how we go about it, because a lot of what really goes on in the engine room of dealing with incidents and faults and problems is highly dependent upon the organisation, the services being offered. So one of the few things that the standard can do is tell us what we need to record or how we need to define certain things. So it tells us, for example, incidents have to be recorded, classified, prioritised, escalated if needed, resolved and closed. It's a simple formula, but we have to make sure we're doing all of that. So the important part of this is probably the first section about being recorded classified and prioritized because by doing that we're setting the groundwork for a more efficient complete and functional incident resolution processes that can occur on top of all of that but there's one little piece that it tells us we need to specifically do and that is to understand what is a major incident so we need to specify and we are free to specify what a major incident actually looks like but we need to have that definition and have it documented more than that, we are bringing top management back into the loop here because the standard tells us that one of the reasons that we are defining a major incident is that top management needs to be kept informed of major incidents. And it's suggested or implied that these are the kinds of incidents that could dramatically affect their reputation and the success and viability of the organisation or the service provider, the sorts of things that top management really should know about. Because if they're happening too often, top management might need to take an interest beyond simply hearing about it. Every major incident that occurs should be thought of as an opportunity for improvement, one that top management should be perhaps leading, if not at least knowing about. It then goes on to talk about service requests. They should be recorded, prioritized, fulfilled, closed. Sounds pretty similar. Records must be kept. Instructions must be made available to those people who are involved in doing it, so the information gets passed on. Problem management, a fairly simple set of requirements. Record and classify, prioritised, escalated if needed, resolved, closed, a simple formula. It goes a little further with problems, but it tells us that we need to be looking at the trends. We need to be looking to identify problems. So it's not simply a case of if a problem becomes obvious, we treat it as a problem. It's telling us that we need to go looking for them because they will probably exist already and they're hidden and we can find them by analysing the data and the trends on whatever is going on with our incidents and we'll undertake the kind of analysis necessary to determine what we could do to prevent these problems from occurring or to reduce their likelihood or their frequency so that we have less incidents from those problems for a lot of organisations is the kind of proactive preventative maintenance that a lot of organisations would love to do. And here's the standard telling us that we simply have to. So we have to keep the right kind of records about problems. And if a problem hasn't been or can't been solved, because sometimes problems require much more significant changes to a service, changes that might require other procedures to be called upon, like change requests like service design, major changes to the service. In the interim, we need to do something to mitigate the impact or the likelihood of incidents that come from that. We need to have workarounds. We need to record those workarounds and we need to share that information. And all these things that we're doing with our problem management, we need to occasionally look back and reflect on whether or not our procedures for problem management can or should be improved in some way. And this, perhaps, leads nicely into 8.7, which is about service assurance. This is about availability management. This is about what we need to do to make sure that we're doing the best and what is required to guarantee that services will continue. So that means, first off, we need to be evaluating what might threaten the availability of services. What are the risks? What are the things that might cause our services to become temporarily unavailable? We need to assess those, we need to document them, we need to make sure that we are aware of them, we need to go looking for them at times. If those risks are significant, if they're perhaps tangible, we might need to take them into account when we're writing our agreements. Our service level agreements or our contracts might need to contain wording that pays some awareness to the risks that we've identified. So this is gonna give us targets, availability targets, what we're aiming for with the availability of our services. We need to specify that, and then we need to be able to monitor that to make sure that we know as and when we're achieving it or not. So we can compare the two results. And perhaps obviously, if that comparison shows that there's a shortfall, we need to do something about it. So a lot of what this clause at 8.7 is talking about is to do with risks. We might have understood some risks, but at planned intervals we need to occasionally reinvestigate those risks. Once we've established what the risks are, we need to have a plan for dealing with them. We need to have certain responsibilities for invoking temporary plans that might need to be called upon if a risk manifests, if service availability is compromised. What are the procedures? For a minor loss of service, or for a major loss of service? What are the targets for when that should be rectified? What are the targets for how long a service should be allowed to be unavailable, whether it's planned or unplanned? What are the targets and plans and expectations for the recovery of a service? What are the commitments and obligations that might be included in the SLA? And if a temporary response has been invoked, how and what do we need to do after normal service availability has been resumed, To get back to normal working conditions to perhaps reverse or back out whatever that temporary thing that was invoked but a big part of managing service continuity is about managing the communications we need to make sure that we know whom to communicate with who are the people that need to be accessible who needs to be called upon not only within our organization but perhaps within other interested parties suppliers customers where urgent information for urgent perhaps collaborative decision making might need to be done then we have one of the biggest and perhaps scariest of all is that it says that whatever plans we have for service continuity we need to test them from time to time that means in some cases we pull the plug and then we do all the things that we would normally have to do in that situation if it was unplanned we test all of the things that we've decided or put in place that should respond to that and make sure that they actually do those things that they've been designed to do. And we do it at planned intervals, but we also do it after we've made major changes. Major changes to the services, or major changes to the continuity response plan. Anything that's significant, we might need to once again test how we respond to a threat to continuity. And of course, it's not just enough to have those tests. We need to record them, we need to respond to whatever that tells us. If the tests tell us that things aren't quite right, deficiencies are found, we obviously need to act upon them. Now the other part of 8.7 is 8.7.3, which is information security management. Now this is also something that is covered to a larger extent in another ISO standard. But it's important enough that it can't be excluded from this, and there are a couple of clauses here that stipulate a few things that we need to do, and in particular record, in regards to information security. Firstly, we need to have a policy. We need to have made decisions about what information security requirements we have, what it looks like, what are the risks. We need to document all of this with regards to the services that are being offered, taking everything into account, including the planning, the expectations, and what the SMS is meant to be doing. We'll communicate this policy. We'll make sure that everyone knows about it. Because, as we all already know, most security flaws are found by an individual or caused at an individual level. Often because individuals are not fully aware of what the policy and its expectations might be. So we can't afford to allow that to happen. We make sure that everybody knows. And because this is a kind of add-on component and it's not meant to be an exhaustive element in information security, it has some fairly simple statements. It says that we need to control information security, in a broad sense. We must know what the infosec risks are to the SMS, and we must deal with it, document them, have a response in place that controls those risks. It tells us that we need to do this not just internally, but with any organisation. Because information, and particularly sensitive information, might need to be transferred between organisations. So we need to have an agreed understanding on what information security controls need to be in place between those organizations. And obviously, we need to monitor and review that, in particular, by monitoring incidents. So we need to do the sorts of things that we just talked about with other kinds of service incidents, the same way in information security incidents. We need to record and classify them, prioritize them, taking into consideration the risks, escalate if necessary, resolve and close them the same formula that we've talked about before with incidents and much the same as was talked about under the problems section we need to do some analysis on security incidents we need to look at the trends we need to look at what this might tell us about weaknesses in our information security management and controls and obviously we need to act upon those and lastly just in case we weren't aware The standard points out that ISO IEC 27000 series is what goes into much more detail about information security requirements and suggests that maybe we should adopt a little bit of that as well. This is the end of lecture 9D.